Welcome back to Take a Moment. This is producer Josh Reed. And I'm one of your hosts, Mari Yamaguchi. And I actually had the pleasure of sitting down in the editing room, putting this episode together, and we had such an awesome conversation with founder and CEO of Purposely John Qualls and what we're calling a workshop in entrepreneurship. Yes, it was a workshop in entrepreneurship and also a lesson in humility. I think we often think of our entrepreneurs, leaders, and CEOs as these uh, superheroes, invincible, that they got to where they got to as overnight sensations. But what we really loved about John was his vulnerability and his ability to really be human and really tell that story of the human side of being a superhero. And everybody who's familiar with superheroes, that everybody has that origin story, right. that push that you know motivates them to become the hero of their own story. You know, Spider-Man has the death of Uncle Ben, Batman has the death of his parents in Crime Alley. Like those are defining moments that pushes a hero to be what they are and you know really drive their potential. Right. And that's one of the things with John, he talks about some of his failures, both uh, professionally and personally. But what we really loved about him was that he said failure is only a point in time and that it's how you overcome it and how you wrestle and deal with it that really takes you on to that next level. Um, John actually is not just a founder and CEO of one company, but of many companies. Uh, he was actually one of the first people to uh, put a Wikipedia entry in on what is now known as cloud. Um, back in the day, it was called infrastructure as a service. And when we say it's a workshop in entrepreneurship, he really talks about what it means not only to be a leader, but also when you're too early to the game or when you're too late to the game as well, too. Um, from everything from his talks at FailFest to what he calls tours of duty with his career. And it's great opportunity to really dive deep with an entrepreneur and a leader who is really honest about how he got to where he got and how really any of us, if we do it right, can get there as well. We also talked a little bit about the future of technology. As a CEO, he has a lot to take into account with um, how he implements technology right. within his company. and uh, Especially with their company, right? It's talent exactly. optimization. It's really getting into the nitty gritty of humans and, and really into that territory of privacy and data and, and what's yours and what's mine, what's what's the company's and, and how they really deal with it. And I know we keep talking about superheroes, but it's also about using things for the power of good mm -hmm. or the option of, for some folks, to use it for the power of evil. Exactly. Like if you have AI that you want to implement within your company, is it safe? Is it reliable? There are ethics that go into it. And those are things that he takes into account. Absolutely enjoyed it. And I hope you take a moment and listen with us. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We are super excited to have you with us. Uh, we know your experience stretches many fields, many points of expertise and experience. And we're excited to dive right in. But before we ask the really hard hitting questions, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Who is your favorite superhero? Favorite superhero? Oh, that is a really uh, good one. The thing is, I, I can't remember the name of the, the guy. It was actually a show in the 80s. And it was this misfit guy who got these powers, but he didn't know how to use it. It's like America. It was called the American Is hero. It the greatest American hero. Greatest yeah. American hero. Yes. Uh, Believe it or not, I'm, I'm walking, walking on, on air. air. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 
so when you asked that question, that's the first thing I thought of was him. I love it. Now, that's an answer I've never gotten before. Is there something that drew you to that particular hero as you uh, as you watched him when you were when you were a kid? I just think this thing about being humble is really important. And I think we all have superpowers. And I know for me personally, every time I started to believe my own stuff was when I had my probably biggest failures. And if I just focused on what was really important and not worry about my own, uh, you know, making myself bigger than life, then I, I seem to be more successful. And every time that I, I uh, someone said, eat my own cheese, I think is what they say in the NFL, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I just felt like I started making decisions for the wrong reason, you know, chase the money. I don't know. That's that's for me. Right. So I just I want to have my superpowers and leverage them for good. And I'll what I really liked about him is that he didn't know how to use them. And so it was like this journey of trying to uncover to learn what is learn. super superpowers. And I think everybody's on this just this incredible journey. And you're going to learn all these things about yourself. And to me, that's that's like real wealth is that so. I love that you said we all have those superpowers. It's about discovering uh, what those specific things are for us as individuals and then how are we going to use them to better the world around us. And from a point of humility, not a point of like, oh, I'm the most powerful Humble person. brag. Exactly. Yeah. Look what I can do. Well, we always get that from you, Nate. Absolutely. That. Absolutely. <laughs> it's always the like, best what? employee is smart, hungry, and humble. And I think a lot of times we, we just chase the smart and hungry mm-hmm. and uh, that humble it doesn't make great teams sometimes when everybody's trying to be on first. I almost feel like the superhero that you're talking about really plays a part in what you're currently doing with Purposely. Tell us a little bit about that and and how you're trying to harness other people's superheroes. Yeah, so I really feel that to me, it's really a rethinking about what is actual talent. And to me, talent is your physical, intellectual, and emotional potential. And everybody has talent. A lot of times people say, oh, I don't know what my talent is, but it's, it's probably it's related to these three things. And we're all born with this talent. And then we have to put the skill on top of it. Right. So uh, and then you got to point that towards a problem that you care about uh, that the, the world wants solved and is willing to reward you for it. Right. So purpose is really when those things come together. And so, you know, I had an opportunity to do a nonprofit the last uh, four years uh, before uh, purposely. And, you know, that's what I really saw people light up is when they really found their purpose. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to say, don't chase your passions, chase your your problems that you care about, uh, which is the different, right? Uh, right? We get compensated. 80% of your paycheck is the problems that you solve. And uh, it's interesting to watch as people retire and they lose their purpose because it was so tied mm-hmm. to the problems that they were able to solve at work. Right. And so I really wanted to expand that. So I wanted to, to create an organization that would help an individual understand who what their real talent was. And then as an organization, say, how can we optimize talent? and align it, right? Because that's where I really think things are going. How do you bridge that gap between, let's say I've hit 65, I've built up a good retirement, and I decide I'm going to leave the career that I've been in for you know 25 years or so. I'm going to leave that and I'm going to retire, but I'm still somebody who wants to be active, somebody who wants to be making a difference. I don't want to just sit on a beach and sip my ties. How do I bridge that gap or how have you instructed other people to kind of bridge that gap so that they don't lose the purpose even when they're retired from their career? So my counsel is always, I look at things in tours of duty. I was in the Marine Corps for uh, six years. And so I look at things like a tour of duty and uh, I do, I look at things three years at a time. 
uh, one year at a time. So what do I want to do this year? What do I want to do next year? And that third year, do I want to do this again for another three years? So that's how I look at it. So when I see people coming at retirement, it's like, hey, this is an end of a tour of duty and kind of a big one, depending on how long they've been associated with their organization. But what does the next tour of duty look like for you? And they have to, I always advocate looking at it in three-year increments because what happens is they, they're so excited to get to retirement, they go rushing out there and about three to four months in, everything that, that they believed who they were is now gone, right? The value mm-hmm. that they provide. So, so kind of having a plan and looking at, you know, what are, the, what are my unique skills from a talent standpoint that I can point towards new problems? If you look at the people I think who are, are the happiest after retirement is that they start volunteering, they start go, you know, getting involved in nonprofits, they, they start going back to, to youth and trying to give back, mm-hmm. right, and try to give insight. Those are the ones that, that you, you see them thrive. It's the ones that don't, right, who, right. who kind of fight every uh, inch of the way on the way out the door, and then they find mm-hmm. themselves kind of just kind of lost. Right. right. Yeah, my grandfather's a great example of finding that purpose again after so many years. Uh, he was a police commissioner for the city of Tokyo, and one of the things that he did after he retired was, you know, he's like, I'm going to get a third degree. So he went back to school. And the reason why he went is like, he's like, I love being immersed with so many young minds and so much potential around me that, you know, he also ended up becoming a mentor for a lot of those, those youth and trying to point them in the right direction of, like you said, point them where their talent and their purpose um, together and align. Yeah. I really want to talk about 1150 Academy as well. But before we get to that, I know you've been an entrepreneur for years and years. And to do that, it takes a kind of steely determination and a backbone and creativity. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges and uh, successes of starting your very first businesses and what you've learned along that journey? Yeah. So, you know, I might want to take a little farther back and say, how did I get really involved in technology? And then I think that'll help. So uh, I was a freshman in high school with straight F's and, uh, but I was on the football team and uh, we like girls. And uh, back in the day, all the girls were in typing class. So five of us uh, football players decided that we were going to, as, for a laugh, we were going to take typing because that's where the girls were. And the girls were there, right? It was a class of 35 30 girls and five football players. Uh, But the other thing that was there was the ability to compete and who could type the fastest and the accurate. And I have to tell you, this was the last year of manual typewriters. Oh, wow. wow. And I could type 80 words a minute on a manual typewriter. That's pretty impressive. impressive. Every day it was game on, like who could type the fastest. (laughs) And uh, because I learned the skill to type, it happens the time where really the PC computers and everything started to come into the high schools. And it gave me a leg up of instead of trying to figure out like how to hit the keys, I could really understand what was this technology and and how could I use it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I I come from an area in Indianapolis called Hallville and actually an area less than that called the Bottoms. So you can kind of get a feel for what that is. Uh, You know, we used to uh, our house would flood a couple of times a year and we had to spray it out and yeah. Uh, we had an outhouse, right? We didn't have working plumbing. And, very yeah. nice, very so, nice. So not exactly the Silver Spoon area of, of Indianapolis. And so I really felt like the, the, the skill, the ability to type was then the, the ability to understand this technology. And it was like my superpower. I could understand it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's kind of how I got in the technology. And it was about solving problems 
and I had thirsted for it, right? I'm, I'm a, I have a high school diploma. I have a 1.95 GPA, right? I don't have a degree, but I joined the Marine Corps. It was a great place to learn uh, discipline and uh, also the, just the ability to do it, right? Just uh, see a problem and then, then take the initiative, go solve it. So after I got out of the, the military and I, I got married while I was in the military, and I, I, I always tell the story, I saw this presentation by this uh, company it was called uh, Database-Driven Websites. Don't learn how to code, learn how to point and click, and they, they could do these websites. And I looked at it and I said, you know, I could explain it better than that guy. So in two weeks, quit my job, I had my second child, and I went to that guy and I said, I wanna sell for your company, but you don't have to pay me a salary. I just wanna make commissions. Yeah, that'll and, motivate you. That'll yeah, motivate you to really succeed. You. <laughs> and, and of course, like, how could he say no? Right. <laughs> I said, all I want is a phone and a business card. And so what I did, and this is before the internet, so before you could Google, I said, well, people want to learn how to code or, or learn how to do this internet thing. So I went to Barnes & Noble, and I, I, they had a little coffee shop there. And I would watch the computer section where the books were. And if I saw somebody over there, I'd go over and kind of stand next to them and start asking about what they were trying to do. And Right. So, uh, so you, 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 so being a weird guy in Barnes and Noble is how you really taught yourself. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. That's incredible. I, I did almost a million dollars of business at a Barnes and Noble that year. It's just in projects and stuff. Right. So wow. it was a great, great thing. So I think all, it was a big lead up to your, your question. Uh, I am just really passionate about uh, doing things. You see a problem, go try to figure out how to solve it. You know, you're going to fail and, and you're going to trip and, other things, but if you if you really are solving a problem in the world, people will see that. I, I've never really been professionally trained from a, a sales standpoint, but people say, "Oh, John, you're you're so great at sales," or or whatever that was throughout my career. At the end of the day, if you believe in what you're promoting, mm -hmm. it's pretty easy, right? right? It's like it's really no, we can really solve this problem. I you really believe it, and that energy comes off. Thinking that's what's been. Uh, most successful me in the different companies is, you know, is there a problem? Can we solve that problem? Can I solve it for more than one organization? And can I scale it, right? right. Those are kind of the four, four things I'm always kind of looking at. I think there's a fascinating pattern with so many of the founders and CEOs of tech industry businesses that do really, really well. A lot of times school wasn't their thing whether it was high school or college, you don't see a lot of college degrees a lot of times in Silicon Valley, let's say. And I'm wondering what that thing is in the minds of some of our most brilliant CEOs and founders of tech companies. What's that disconnect of, I'm just not resonating with how I'm learning or what I'm learning in school. What I need to do is go out and experience things. I'm wondering what that disconnect is. And I'm wondering also from somebody who is uh, hopefully one day going to be a father and who has also been through a lot of college uh, in my younger days, I think, man, is college something that is really, should I be aspiring to go to college? Is that something, uh, should I have kids one day? Is that something that I should point them to? Or should I open the gates of their possibilities of just saying, find out what you're passionate about and then get in the business of doing it. As somebody who has a lot of wisdom there, what would you say? Yeah, the problem is that you want to solve, right? I know everybody wants to chase their passions, but you know, I kind of like golf, but I'm a triple digit golfer. 
And uh, so, and the world doesn't need triple-digit golfers, and you actually have to pay to play to be a triple-digit <laughs> golfer, right? So maybe around those, those problems. Here's my, you know, I spent the last four years uh, with the nonprofit 1150 uh, Academy and uh, really looking at this, this issue with skills and purpose and things. Here's, here's my hypothesis of how we got here. In World War II, Vietnam War, Korean War, we took young people and we sent them off to war and we taught them how to do things under extreme pressure. And then we brought them back, we gave them the GI Bill and we sent them to college and they learned how to think. And they took that ability to think and do, and I think just a tremendous generation of entrepreneurs, right? Because they just knew how to get things done, right? Under mm -hmm. pressure, right? For those that came back, right? So great sacrifice. Uh, and then what happened, I think over time, like in the 70s and the 80s, they said, well, I want my kids to have a better life than I did. A lot of them came from, you know, not a great background, but they'd been very successful. And so there slowly became this emphasis that high school was about college acceptance and college was about degree obtainment. And college, uh, I'd say, and I've talked to a lot of different professors, is really about trying to teach people how to think and find out what their, what that skill set is that you can then go and do it out in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, whatever you feel on unions, right? So the ability to apprenticeship programs declined. We used to have industrial arts in high school, right? You look at the decline of the, the trades. We got rid of all the industrial arts. So I feel like there's people who probably shouldn't have gone to college that we encouraged them to go. And they took on all that debt. And they struggled through it and they may not have come out with a degree yeah. or anything, right? And it's yeah. like, hey, you just you just got this degree and let me put a, a 90,000 pound uh, rock on your back of debt. And then we asked them to go fly. And that's why they don't want to be entrepreneurs. Or they don't want to take those risks because we they're walking around with $90,000 of debt. Right. You can't to, afford a lot of risk at that I point. I can't right. afford to risk. And that's the, in your 20s is the time where you got to take all those risks, right? right. So. Uh, that's how I think that we kind of got here. But I, I think a lot of entrepreneurship has to do with the ability to be comfortable with risk, you know, and just kind of be wired to want to solve problems and the ability to envision what it might be. And I think humble enough, and this is where I probably saw my failures, is uh, not to be too stubborn that your mm -hmm. idea is the right one and the ability to listen more to your team and to the market. Uh, sometimes I was just going to, I'm going to will it to happen. <laughs> And uh, they usually didn't always turn out for me. So, You talked about in your past, you said, hey, I'll take this job, 100% commission, that courage to take that risk to, to fail. So one of our favorite questions is, what's one of your favorite failures? Yeah. So I started an organization, uh, Blue Lock, and um, we wanted to do infrastructure as a service. And uh, we actually created the Wikipedia entry, Infrastructure as a Service. And we thought that was the wave of the future. It ended up, instead of being called infrastructure as a service, it was called uh, cloud, right? Mm -hmm. So we were too early. So one, yeah. part of the failure was being too early. We spent a lot of time educating in the beginning. But I did, I came across this opportunity to take on the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy and provide the, some of the infrastructure for that. And it was just a, this massive project. And I was bound and determined that I, you know, I was going to take out IBM and Hewlett Packard, EDS, and all these other companies with the eight people that we had in Indianapolis, Indiana. And, uh, and we won that, that contract, right? It wasn't just me, but a, a whole team effort. But I was an absolute monster. I ate people. I mean, <laughs> you know, we went from, you know, like eight people to 300 people or so. 
And uh, I had people working seven days a week, 12, 12 hours, 18 hours a day, kind of like in the military during the Gulf War, right? That's how I looked at it. We were under attack and I was going to win no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I just crushed people. And one weekend I offered them, I said, I'll pay you $1,000 an hour if you work this weekend. And they said, no. To me, I, that's really not understanding. I, I think my biggest challenge has always been I looked at people like I was playing with checkers and, uh, and where I am today and I think where entrepreneurs need to see their people is really needs to look at it like a chess, like a chess game and really understanding each one of your your team and where they fit and where they don't fit and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And it's a lot different than checkers. So I'd say that has been my, uh, you know, kind of frustration. I look back, things I could have done better, been a better leader of people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I chase the technology because of what it could do, but I ran over the people on the way. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, and I learned a, a lot of that, you know, giving back that nonprofit because I couldn't pay them. See, when you're on the for-profit world, you can, you can pay people a lot of money to, to listen to your crap, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the nonprofit side, you, you can't, right? You got to earn the vision. You got you to feel like they're part of something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was paying people to work for me for half the money they could make in the market, but they believed in the vision. So that's probably one of my, I got plenty of failure <laughs> stories, but that's the one I'd say if I boiled it down to, the, if, if I could do better, it'd probably be that. Now, John, you've been involved in something called Fail Fest. And I'm not familiar with that. I'm sure some of our listeners are. For those of us who are not familiar with FailFest, can you tell us a little bit about it and tell us about your involvement in it? Oh, FailFest is wonderful. Uh, John Weschler, a friend of mine, uh, Launch Fishers here in Indiana, kind of came up with this. And uh, basically, they bring together entrepreneurs. Uh, you have 20 minutes to talk about your greatest personal or professional failure, and they don't dictate anything. And so you'll talk, they do them in sets of three. So uh, one entrepreneur will talk for 20, then another, then another. And then they'll bring those three entrepreneurs together in like a panel, and then they'll allow the people in the crowd to ask questions. And uh, I can tell you, well, my first one was, that was a tough one. Uh, talked about a personal failure of mine, uh, tears, everything. It was, it was really rewarding, particularly uh, for people uh, that came to me afterwards. But everybody I know who's done it has just been like, you know, the people who've done it gets a lot out of it. But the people in the crowd, so often we see companies, they get sold and they say, oh, wow, an overnight success. You don't realize that there was actually 11 years of, of failure and missteps along the way. And so the opportunity for people to hear that and hear what the risks were involved and, and how they dealt with it, and people are human, uh, I think is incredible. Yeah, so Felfest, I'm a big, a big fan. If you haven't, don't have it in your community, you should find a way to do it. It, it truly does help build. I, I believe it's a it's a cornerstone of building a great entrepreneurial ecosystem in any community is to just lead with some of these failures of fail fest because it will set the right tone about how the, you go into things. What is the value of getting together and sharing failures? Uh, and I, I, the reason I ask is because we like to talk a lot about that on this show. What's the value in your mind of getting you know, smart people together and saying, hey, let me tell you how I screwed up. Smart and successful people, right? Yeah. Because you can be smart, but not that <laughs> right, successful right, either. <laughs> you know, I, I think in today's world with Instagram and Facebook and, and Snapchat and, and these uh, facades that we surround ourselves with, right? You get to see the best of me and my social media, right? All the, the, the highlights, the ability to come together and a very passionate ability to come together in person and see 
see someone talk about uh, their failure. And I was like, oh, wow, it, it's not some mystery mountain place, right? Where, where all everything is just simple, right? It's actually really hard. And they're like a real person and they're, they're approachable. They're just like me, right? So the ability to, to get comfortable with it, like, oh, I could do this. And as soon as you stumble, it won't judge you as a, as a uh, failure. I, I believe failure is a point in time. It's not a person. There's not a person, right? It's just a point in time where, you know, maybe you made some bad decisions or maybe this the market just wasn't ready for you. But a lot of times we take it so personal. And the reality is, you know, you just got to do your best, right? I did, did my best at the time with what I had, you know, resources, urgency, know-how. Uh, mm-hmm. So often we go back a year later and say, wow, if I'd have known that a year ago. <laughs> well, you know, there's no DeLoreans. No one's going back in time. So you just got to deal <laughs> with it and, and move forward. It's been a great conversation. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after this short commercial break. Hello there, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. As we listen to the stories of failure and success that drove our guest today, John Qualls, to where he is in his professional journey, we recognize what it takes to make a great entrepreneur and the importance of enabling them with the right tools to bring their business ideas to light. We've had several guests over the course of our two seasons who know the value of a really good idea and what it takes to move that idea forward to starting your business. So to learn more about how Genesis Technology can support you and your business as you're starting out, I encourage you to check out the resources below on Genesis.com. And as always, be sure to subscribe and share and stay tuned for the next episode of Take a Moment. So we're continuing our conversation with John Qualls today. Uh, Nate, I know you wanted to have a couple more follow-up questions related to FailFest, so take it away. John, I know that at FailFest you said that you had shared a um, a personal story story of failure that was impactful to the audience there, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to share that with our listeners. Yeah, I'll share that. Uh, one caveat, I'm only going to share the part that's personal to me, uh, not the private side, because uh, they can't give their, their permission here. So the topic was when I was 13, I kind of ran away from home, uh, stayed with, you know, my parents were divorced. I stayed with my dad for a while. It was just kind of a tough situation. I ended up kind of living with friends. I was living in garages and living at people's houses. And actually, a lot of people took care of me, but I was making uh, plenty of bad decisions, uh, getting straight Fs at school. Uh, I was inhaling if I get to that joke and uh, just making lots of bad decisions. And uh, so I actually got a girl uh, pregnant when I was 15 years old. And so, and that child was uh, actually given up for adoption, tremendous courage by the birth mother, by the way. But that, I didn't really tell anybody about that. It was a tremendous uh, guilt and shame associated with that that I was kind of carrying with me. I think a lot of the, the things maybe on the entrepreneur side for me was I really felt like I was better than that. Actually, after that incident, I went from straight Fs to straight A's, and that's how I got my 1.95 GPA high school diploma, was straight Fs and straight A's comes to (laughs) (laughs) 1.95. But I carried that guilt around uh, for 21 years, you know, really trying to prove to myself that I was a better person than than those decisions. And so 21 years later, I'd always kept in contact with the birth uh, mother, so she reached out to me. Uh, so the, the young uh, lady, she had she had just lost her uh, adopted father to cancer, and she wanted to know her parents. 
her birth parents, and she wanted to know the situation behind how she how she came to the world. And so, uh, so we met the birth mother and I, and actually my wife met her. Uh, we actually spent about four hours and took her all around where we grew up and and answered every question that she'd ever could imagine. We answered everything. There was nothing was off the table, and that was a big moment for me. For you know, I just carried that guilt around for so many. Uh, years and trying to prove to myself that I was a better person in that situation. So it's been about 12 years now. It's not perfect. Uh, none of those things are. It, it doesn't happen the way it happens on the, in the movies. But, you know, I try to give her the best advice uh, possible. I found out I was a grandfather. Uh, I don't know, at, at 36 or something, that was kind of shocking. So it's been a real thing. It was, it was like an event in my, my wife knew about it, but Knowing it and having it in your in your life is a different. It almost cost us our marriage, but I tell you, our marriage has, has never been better for it. But I think a lot of it was just forgiving myself for the mistakes I made at 15. And uh, so the ability to get up on Fest and say that and see people's response, the positive response, uh, really helped me forgive myself. And I always say, well, if anybody has a problem with it on the bad decisions I made at 15, you know what? They haven't been 15. You know, they haven't raised anybody that's 15. There's plenty of bad decisions to be made in that part of your life. So, yeah, it was that was just incredible to be able to share that. And uh, it's made, uh, I really think it made my, my marriage better. I always tell the story. I actually didn't tell my wife uh, when we got married. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were married and we were trying to have kids. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't have, we, we tried forever, like five years to have kids. And so one day, one day I broke down, I told her that, that this had happened to me earlier in my my youth. And uh, she's like, well, why have you been walking around with all that? Why don't you just tell me? And she was pregnant <laughs> two weeks later. I, oh, wow. I, oh, wow. I mean, I was like, wow, there's a God, there's something, right? Uh, maybe I just needed to get that out of the way uh, to free it up. So, yeah, that's the, that, was, that was a tough, that was tough. It's amazing how uh, guilt can be a tremendous weight but in your case, it was that to, to an extent, of course, but in your case, it also sort of motivated you to refocus and realign. And how did you go from a space of guilt and frustration and shame to the point where you said, I want to prove to myself that I can do more than this. I'm going to start my own business. I want to be my own boss. What was the genesis of that, uh, no pun intended, what was the uh, origin of your entrepreneurial spirit? I was in the military for six years and learned a tremendous amount about just doing things. And I think carrying some of this, this guilt around and wanting to prove to myself that I could be successful. I, I didn't feel like anybody I knew around me was financially successful. Uh, I think I have a different set of values now. And I see a lot of, I was surrounded by some really wealthy, rich people when it comes to their values, you know, coaches and teachers who took me under their wing and, and, and really served me during the, some of that time. For me, it was, I, I wanted to prove to myself that I could, I could be successful. And, and some of that's financial, but the other one is just, I'm going to go will it to happen, right? Because I know that I am, I am better than the, the past decisions I made. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs uh, have a little bit of inner child in them that wants to prove something uh, and I think when you can direct that energy uh, to growing things and, and making a difference in the world is great. Uh, sometimes maybe get a little bit over the skis on some of those things, uh, but the, the world sends the right size of those things over time. But uh, that's really what kind of has always driven me is 
I wanted to solve problems. And uh, as I've gotten older, I want to solve bigger problems through people. I think in the beginning, I thought it was all about me and what I could make happen. As I've uh, matured, it's really is about the team that I can form and the ability to to guide them and, and enable their success. I get so excited seeing other people find their purpose and find their success and and seeing them take it to places I never could imagine. It's uh, That's what I get so excited about. So as your leadership style has evolved, if there's a young entrepreneur out there who believes that he has the next big idea, the next Apple, the next Amazon, what would be some of your guiding principles or, or guiding words of advice? I've always felt like there's five stages of organizations. There's the raw startup value, what I call emerging value, growth, and then there's a establish and decline. And I, I wish I would have known early on that each one of those requires a different type of leadership style from me and a different team and would involve transitions from the founders to those things. See, in the beginning, you have to be a, a creative leader, right? Because when mm-hmm. you're trying to figure it out, there's a lot of creativity that comes. You think that you have the solution, but maybe you don't. You gotta mm-hmm. be able to pivot, pivot quickly. Uh, then you get that emerging value and that becomes directive leadership. And you kind of tell people what to do. You got a small team and you're just trying to move quickly. And then when you move to that growth stage, it's all about how do you delegatory, right? So it's not all about you anymore, mm-hmm. right? Which is not only is it not about you, but you've brought people in maybe as a founder who's wearing five hats. Mm-hmm. And now you got to help them transition to one or even out of the organization. And that, well, I wish I'd have known that because I would save so much energy and time uh, knowing that, right? And then uh, uh, to finish it out, establishes really uh, around governance, right? So you're protecting an established brand. Mm-hmm. And then obviously when it's declined, it's all about the efficiency to squeeze uh, this, this declining asset, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know how to give them, give it to them other than living through it. I mean, you can tell them all day long, but they won't won't believe you. Yeah. But it goes back to the doing, right? Yeah. You got to do it. To... You, you got to go do it. You got to go feel those pains and you got to, you know, you got to let somebody go that started the company with you, mm-hmm. right? Because the timing was there. It was right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every time there's a those transitions, everyone feels that there's a jerk involved. Uh, what I found uh, usually a couple of years later is there's a lot of, wow, I, I needed that courage from you to move me to a, a better place mm-hmm. because I couldn't take it for myself. And by the way, I, I've had it done myself or as a founder to, mm-hmm. be, to be replaced, right? right? And that emotional journey, right? It's right. tough. And uh, I just had, I was surrounded by some great people who helped me through it, mm-hmm. even though I was kicking, scratching all the way through it, right? <laughs> so, but all good. That, I, that's why it's just understand the, the whole, the, the scope of the journey mm-hmm. and what those things will be. And I wish I would have, I would have known that. It would have yeah. sure made a lot of things easier. <laughs> you talked about you can either be too early or too late. Tell us a little bit about how how that works and, and how as, as an entrepreneur or as a company, how you either spend too much time educating or then now you're too late and now you're chasing after everybody yeah. else. So I think that the, the too early is that, you know, there's a couple of times where I felt like we were way too early. You spend so much time educating the market on the problem that you're solving that they don't even recognize it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how's, how's there's a saying I always have, sell the problem you're solving, not the solution you're selling. When you're too early and the market doesn't even realize that it has a problem, 
then you're, you're educating them on what the, the problem is, particularly when you're bringing like a technology, a new way of doing things. And, and it, it feels theoretical about the impact on the other side, right? either financially or agility or whatever is the, you know, the core of what you're doing. Uh, you spend all this time educating the market you know, and blowing through a lot of money and a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And then, then the market starts to pick up. But you know, you're kind of running out of, out of gas, right? You've been evangelizing for so long that then the market starts to take off. And then you know, now you're highly diluted. You've been taking this money along the way. Mm-hmm. You're trying to get more money. But you know, it's, yeah, it's just a tough, tough spot to be. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to, to catch back up again, right? right. I think when, you're, when you come in uh, late, mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, there's these big market share players. And, and what is yours going to make it any different? Um, your ability to raise money in that in that market, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't feel like there's a, a bigger upside to some of the investors involved. You know, it's all a, a crapshoot at sometimes, right? You're, just, <laughs> you're trying to get the right balance. I think that the the opportunity I'm working now uh, purposely uh, feels like that we're a tad early, but it's really it's kind uh, of converging. It's at kind the of right converging, yeah. right? This 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 marketplace we call town optimization mm-hmm. is really a new emerging space. And the timing feels feels better than ever. But I say that on every time. (laughs) So I'm convinced myself. But I I really do feel timing is another part of the potential failure. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say, you know, it's a point in time versus a person, because sometimes it's just stacked up against you. Right. Right. You are the CEO and president of Purposely. And I want to get into this because I'm interested in the idea of talent optimization. Before you talk about talent optimization, what is the problem that you're solving with Purposely? I really felt like my time in the nonprofit really exposed me to organizations not being purpose-driven. And an organization can't be purpose-driven if the individuals there don't understand their purpose and its alignment to the, the purpose of the organization. So I'm really focused on how can we enable purpose-driven organizations through the methodology of talent optimization. When you're excited to come into work every day and you're excited to the people that you work with and the problems that your company solve, can you believe you get paid to do that, right? Right. You pinch uh, yourself, right? Because you're yeah. like, that's too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, you kind of pinch yourself. It's like, a good place to be. I hope nobody knows, right? But right. you're in there and you're solving hard problems and not alone but with other people. So, so to me, that's why we call it purposely. I was actually in a, uh, at this event, and they were talking about all these failed initiatives. And this one lady said, you know, until we purposely wrote down, like, what are our objectives and what we wanted to accomplish, and we just was disciplined around that, we weren't successful. And I wrote down the word purposely, and then I heard the word purposely 15 times. I put a little check mark next to it in the uh-huh. next hour. So I pulled out my laptop. I was like, is that available? <laughs> and so I bought, I bought that domain purposely. But to me, that's the problem, right? There's, there's a, so many people are, you know, going to exchange time for money. And it just, you know, how, how's the saying go, right? They were buried at 50, but died at 30, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's got to be a way. So I wanted to do something that was for-profit, town optimization for organizations, but also the ability to do good, right? I feel like I'm I'm on the back nine of my career, and I, I want to feel like whatever I do, that the organization was successful, but the people that we touched, that I made, I made a big impact. So Let's talk a little bit about that with the talent optimization and culture. We hear a lot of companies talking about, oh, we have a great co- company culture, and we have engaged employees, but there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect with 
the true meaning of culture and engagement. They think it's, oh, we have happy hours or we have the fun Atari games, you know, in the, in the break rooms. We have ping or, pong tables. Right, exactly. Yeah, I always say the ping pong <laughs> table is not culture, right? So here's the, if I could give it to him in, in 30 seconds, right, this framework around town optimization and the, the four disengagements, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, it's you have a business strategy and you have the outcomes that you want for that. And in the middle is the talent. And you got to design the right team for where the organization is. You got to hire the right people. You got to inspire the ones you got. You got to diagnose the problems that are going on inside there. Because at the end of the day, there's four disengagements. It always winds up these four things. People don't like the culture that you have, right? And culture, by the way, there's the one that you craft and the one that you allow. And too often, it's the one we allow. Job fit, bad job. I don't enjoy my job or I'm not a good fit for this job, right? That also makes people run. The next one is this this whole, the, the team interactions always come with some flavor that just doesn't feel right. Like I don't enjoy that. And then that last one is I, I don't, uh, my manager is either not equipped to, to lead me. So imagine if you worked at some place where you love the culture, you love your job, you love the people you worked and the person that you work, I don't like to say work for, but you're working with to solve problems is someone you respect and are investing in you all the time. I, I think that's a pretty good thing going there, right? right. It's like a good place to be oh, part yeah. of. Absolutely. But when, it's, when it's not one of those. So how as we as leaders, you know, do that? And, and I got to say, culture is not a skew that you can buy on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And by the way, anybody who wants to reach out to me and want me to come by and talk for an hour at their, their uh, executive retreat because we're going to solve the town optimization, <laughs> don't even call me because it doesn't work that way, right? It's not a, it's not a one-hour session that you talk about amongst yourselves in the woods. Well, it's like what you said, right? Allow and then create. Create is so much harder that people are like, like you said, I'd rather just get it on Amazon and and just plug it into my company. Yeah. So I think around culture, right? So like, what do you, what do you craft? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think a lot of times it's values is not a place that you visit. Oh, here we are. Here's our values here on the wall, right? Mm -hmm. I make sure like within my organization, I know our values and they are great, by the way. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's the only way I know how to spell it. Right. I know genuine and thought G is genuine and authentic. Mm-hmm. Right. I know uh, R is being respectful of the responsibility that we have. Right. E is always being encouraging. Right. Always mm-hmm. encouraging others. Right. A, always growing, always never being satisfied, always pushing. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh, the T being team supported. So what I do is when someone comes in, on board our organization, they have three weeks mm-hmm. and then they have to present our values to their team. Oh, wow. And what they mean to them, right? Mm-hmm. Because anybody that works for me should be able to talk about what our values are mm-hmm. and not be able, hang on, let me go look that up. Okay. Oh, <laughs> right. no. Here it is here by the front door. You can see mm-hmm. uh, here's where, you, so values is not something you visit. And last thing I'll say of this around culture is how do you know when you have culture right from a leadership standpoint? Mm-hmm. It's when there's a, a, a tough client interaction or a tough uh, problem for the organization and you see that your values and the way that you do things was exercised to make good judgment and good interactions in which you as a leader were not in the room. Mm-hmm. That's when you know you're, you're doing it right. If you have to be there and write it all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, There's something wrong there, yeah. right? You know, early in my career, I used to tell people, hey, listen, if there's ever a problem, you can reach me 24-7, seven days a week. Here's my number. And I really thought I was doing, I was like being good. Mm-hmm. Now, what I was really saying was, I really don't have a team that I trust to take care of your problems, right? right? So now I just say, hey, I got a great team. They're going to take care of you. If there's ever an issue you want to talk about, I'm sure they'll address it. But 
if you do need to reach out to me, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of available, but you probably will never reach out because I know my team will take care of it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a whole different right. paradigm. Yeah. John, you've had uh, years and years of innovation in the technology space, lots of uh, creativity. What is something that you're most excited about for the future of technology? I'm actually excited about it, but also a little concerned. So one of the things we've been working on is if we know so much about you and what you want to be, right, from a purpose standpoint, the ability to use AI at scale, right, and the ability to provide you a little nudge just in time for when you need to hear things, right? And uh, we we spent a lot of time looking at it. Actually, I kind of paused on that recently uh, with that initiative because we're trying to figure out how to do it uh, because we always go into it the right intentions of using it as a force of good. But I'm actually took a step back and said, wait a minute, how would someone actually use this as a force for evil, right? And uh, so I'm, I'm most excited about the AI uh, potential. I'm a very passionate that uh, a lot of our happiness, as I, as I look at, you know, this first generation of the internet has made us see, made the world really small. And, uh, you know, I like to think of it as a pendulum, right? It swung one way. I think it's going to swing back the other way, and it's going to be about using AI and technology to make the world feel closer and more intimate and more tailored to who you are. And so I'm excited about the things that can be done with AI. I think with with that is going to come, I think, an ownership of who you are, your identity uh, has got to get fixed, right? And controlling who your identity is, because right now all those all external parties own your identity and they make money off of it. Uh, right? And, and sometimes I think the exchange of value isn't uh, equitable. So I think uh, AI and this this thing of the individual owning their identity are the next big things. I think we need them no matter what, right? But I, I think that the, the generation coming up is going to demand it and uh, we're going to have to make it work. John, that is incredible. Thank you very much for your time with us. I know that we could go on for three more hours because I feel like there's much more we need to learn from you, uh, but we do really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for taking a moment with us, John. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.